Welcome back to the Weekly Rundown with Atlas. The official podcast by Monash International Affairs Society. We are your hosts, Shania and Phoebe Anka. Hey everyone, I hope it's been a great week wherever you are. This week's episode is a little packed, so we'll get into it straight away. I'm going to start off with the assassination of Shinzo Abe. On Friday the 18th of July, Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated during a campaign event. The former Prime Minister was shot from behind and this has shocked Japan, especially because it's a country with one of the world's lowest gun crime rates. As Japanese citizens paid their final respects to a strong figure in the community, tributes have poured in from international leaders like French President Emmanuel Macron and US President Joe Biden. Following the assassination, Biden condemned the act and said that he is stunned, outraged and deeply saddened. In his statement, he also expressed how this is a tragedy for Japan and for all who knew him. As of now, the suspect is said to have used a homemade gun, which also speaks to the rarity of guns in Japan as well as the limited access to them. It is also believed that he worked in the Japanese Navy and had had gun training. The reason as to why exactly the assassination was carried out is yet to be determined, but there are multiple theories floating around. Some believe that the assassination was motivated by anger towards the controversial religious group known as the Moonies. The key suspect told investigators that he blamed the religious group for his mother's financial problems and that he believed that former Prime Minister Abe was linked with the religious group. So who was Shinzo Abe exactly? For Japan, Abe seems to have been a symbol of stability and security. In 2012, he became prime minister at a time in which Japan was in need of a lot of recovery. The country had just suffered a massive earthquake, tsunami and nuclear meltdown at Fukushima and the Japanese economy had not yet recovered from its 1992 stock market collapse. Unlike his predecessors, Abe came in with an economic plan which involved flooding the financial market with liquidity and forcing prices up, even as interest rates were dropping below zero. So as prices rose, people had to put their money into the country, spending and creating growth and pushing up wages. But more than economics, Abe's passions were said to lie in the realm of national security issues. During his time as prime minister, he sought to build an alliance of what he called like-minded democracies. And so he was instrumental in the creation of the Quad, which is a security alliance between the US, Japan, India and Australia, which we've spoken about before. Um, A pivotal change that Abe is known for is actually an amendment to Article 9 of Japan's constitution, which is said to be the key to Japan's security policy. Following the devastations of World War II, Japan constitutionally agreed to concede its military capabilities and exclusively maintain a self-defense force. This is a crucial part of the constitution that makes Japan a pacifist nation. However, Prime Minister Abe made it his mission to amend the country's pacifist constitution, especially with tensions rising close to home over the East China Sea. Rather than completely getting rid of Article 19, which was almost impossible to do, he passed a law reinterpreting the meaning of the article. This allowed Japan to sustain its security in the face of regional rivals such as China. Of course, as with every decision and change, there was opposition to this decision. Many traditionalists within Japan said that it had the potential to increase tensions within the regional areas surrounding Japan. 
Today, given the rising tensions in the region, especially with China and Taiwan, the amendments made by Abe provide an enhanced security to Japan, along with a minimized need for the country to depend on its allies for protection. The world is definitely mourning the loss of a leader who brought about change and stability for Japan in its time of need. And hopefully the country will be able to recover from that loss. Moving on to more heavy news, we've seen a dramatic escalation of events in Sri Lanka in the last week. Large-scale protests escalated at the president's official residence as well as at the prime minister's private home, which have prompted the president to flee the country. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, the country is enduring a severe economic crisis fueled by economic mismanagement, which has been complemented by deep tax cuts and immediate shift to the use of organic fertilizers and the COVID-19 pandemic. This has resulted in increased debt, extreme foreign currency shortages, which has led to fuel shortages, power shortages, and food shortages. So as we've mentioned in previous episodes, the country has been seeing a lot of resistance from the public with protests occurring over the past few months. The action plan of the protesters, which was drafted in July, includes five key demands. The first being that President Gotabaya Rajapaksha should resign with immediate effect. Secondly, Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe and the entire government must resign with immediate effect. This includes all cabinet, non-cabinet, deputy and project ministers. Thirdly, following the resignation of the Rajapaksha Wickremesinghe regime, an interim government which subscribes to the economic, social and political aims and aspirations of the people's struggle should be established with representatives of the movement forming a people's council with legal standing and the ability to engage and mediate with the interim government. Fourthly, till a new constitution is in place, the steps should be taken to include reduction of executive powers of the president and strengthening democratic institutions. Finally, a new constitution that endorses the people's sovereignty should be established with the executive presidency being abolished and an appropriate process for fair election put in place. On the 9th of July, the country saw large-scale protests with citizens travelling from all over the country to the official presidential residence in Sri Lanka to effectively oust the president from his position. The crowd of protesters demanded Rajapaksha's resignation, which is one of the many demands of the movement, but as the day progressed, soldiers and police were unable to hold back the crowd as they stormed and seized the official presidential residence and later set fire to the Prime Minister's private home. It's unclear whether Rajpaksha and Wickramasinghe were at their residences when the demonstrations escalated or whether they were removed prior to the escalations. But amidst this, there was also infighting amongst groups representing different political parties within the larger group of demonstrators. Following this, the country's parliamentary speaker had said that Rajapaksha would step down after the protests on Saturday when demonstrators stormed the president's official residence and set fire to the prime minister's home in Colombo. Rajapaksha has since fled to the Maldives and then Singapore with the promise of submitting his official letter of resignation. During this time, he also acted to make the prime minister 
acting president in the meantime. The Speaker of Parliament said that Rajapaksha has approved Wickremesinghe as acting president by invoking a section of the constitution dealing with times when the president is unable to fulfill his duties. Wickremesinghe declared a state of emergency following this decision and a curfew with immediate effect as thousands of people gathered outside and stormed his office demanding his resignation too. In the meantime, protesters surrendered control of four government buildings that they occupied back to authorities, but continued to hold under their control a section of the presidential secretariat near the main protest site. And they also took control of a governmental media outlet and used it to broadcast their own content through the platform. On the 14th of July, Sri Lanka's Speaker of Parliament confirmed that he had received a letter of resignation from President Rajapaksha in Singapore and his office stated that he will make a formal announcement on Friday after checking the accuracy of the document and fulfilling all legal requirements. As expected, there have been a lot of ex- opinions expressed from international bodies and other nations. A representative from the US State Department stated that they urged the government or any new constitutionally selected government to work quickly to identify and implement solutions that will achieve long-term economic stability and address the Sri Lankan people's discontent over the worsening economic conditions. Similarly, representatives from the British government emphasised the need to provide aid to help its fellow Commonwealth nation in a time of need and contribute to solutions to the country's worsening economic problems, which I think is definitely where the focus should be. The country is in desperate need of a solution that will allow it to provide its citizens with basic necessities that are extremely inaccessible at the moment. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, also stated that it is important that the root causes of the conflict and protesters' grievances are addressed. He urged all party leaders to embrace the spirit of compromise for a peaceful and democratic transition. The emphasis on a spirit of compromise seems important for Sri Lanka's current situation as the consequences of elongating the crisis become more dire and the need for an immediate solution becomes necessary. In terms of the country's future, with Prime Minister Wickremesinghe taking over as acting president, he expressed the continuation of bailout talks with the IMF and said that he expects a preliminary agreement by late July, suggesting that the country is depending heavily on the IMF for a way out of its crisis. However, political instability, which the country is reflecting at the moment, could undermine Sri Lanka's discussions with the IMF. If this happens, the country will be hard-pressed for a solution for its economic issues. I guess in the meantime, what we can hope for is that some sort of solution will come to light in a very timely manner so that the country doesn't have to suffer much longer through this crisis. I think that's all we have time for today. It's been a pretty heavy episode this week, but I hope you guys have a great weekend ahead and don't forget to tune in for next week's episode of the Weekly Rundown.